Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. Pillar and Ground is a podcast for the LMPC family so that we may deepen in our knowledge of the ground on which we stand and increase our connection with whom we stand together in community and mission. Pillar and Ground features three different types of episodes. Pillar and Ground are confession of faith, Pillar and Ground are connections, and Pillar and Ground are questions. This episode is a pillar and ground confession of faith episode where we seek to understand and apply the Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we are studying Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 1.2 and 1.3. And these chapters mainly are concerned with the divine inspiration of Scripture, a very crucial doctrine. Chapter 1.2 says, Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the written word of God, are all the books of the Old Testament, Old and New Testaments, namely, and then it lists uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament often refers to the Old Testament when it mentions things, phrases you may remember, like in Luke chapter 16. It refers to the Old Testament with a phrase such as, verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. That's shorthand for the Old Testament. Some refer to Moses and the prophets. Luke 16, verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. That's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, meaning they need to attend to Scripture. Further, at the end of Luke, Jesus on the road to Emmaus opens the eyes of the two men, and it says that he opened up to them and began with Moses and all the prophets, and then later before the disciples, everything must be fulfilled in Luke twenty four forty four that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So clearly, the New Testament acknowledges Holy Scripture, the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, Moses, and the Prophets, and the Psalms. And so what you see is part of being a covenant people is having a covenant document. It is God's intent all along to rule His church by a written document that we talked about in our last episode as special revelation. That written revelation was accepted and clearly received as you read the New Testament authors. Now, John in John chapter 5 speaks about the Word of God from the mouth of Jesus. As Jesus in chapter 5, verse 45, says these words, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. That's remarkable. Jesus is saying, first, Moses is an author of Scripture known as the Pentateuch. And Jesus is saying, Moses is writing about me. And that points to something we'll talk about later of Christ-centered interpretation. Further, in John chapter 10, 33 through 36, we see the imperative of a covenant people being ruled by a written document. 
Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? And so there he speaks about the scripture can't be broken. Now understand, as Jesus says that, the majority of the New Testament now, the New Testament has not been written. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament, acknowledged as authoritative Scripture, those 39 books of the Old Testament. Paul refers to Scripture in Romans 15.4 when he says that the Old Testament Scriptures, again acknowledged, the New Testament writers knew that a covenant people would have a written covenant document. And so it says... Those Old Testament scriptures, Romans 15, 4, were given for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Throughout the New Testament, you hear Jesus say these words, have you not read? He's constantly referring in Matthew 12, Matthew 19, Matthew 21, Mark 2, Luke 6. He is in essence with that statement saying, do you not know what God has said? In other words, Jesus is recognizing the inspiration of the Old Testament. Now, when Jesus comes and the New Testament comes along, it would have been expected with the fulfillment of the new covenant that there would be a written document to go along with that covenant. God rules his church by a written document, and we see that listed in the Confession of Faith with the 27 books of the New Testament. The religion of the New Testament is essentially the same as that of the old, centered on written word. Matter of fact, the writers of the New Testament would appeal to the writings in the New Testament at various times. One of those is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In that writing, Paul writes these words in chapter 5, verse 18. This that he says about Luke. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. There he is citing a New Testament writing, something that Peter would do later as he would note that ignorant and unstable men twist the letter of Paul, listen to this, as they do the other scriptures. Peter's acknowledging Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. So Paul's letters are noted as scripture just like Jesus noted the book of Moses is scripture. And so it's important for us when we see the books that make up the Holy Scripture to recognize the reality of being a covenant people necessitates a covenant document, law, written down in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, you probably will ask, well, didn't the early church dispute certain books? How did we come up with this list? Eventually, didn't somebody have to pick the books of the Bible? I cannot commend to you highly enough uh, the work of Ryan Reeves and Charles Hill in a book, Know How We Got Our Bible. Interestingly, I had the privilege of being the teaching assistant for Charles Hill while I was down at RTS Orlando. He's also written a wonderful work called Who Chose the Gospels? And Michael Kruger has written a work called Canon Revisited that addresses these things, questions like, didn't the early church dispute certain books? And who picked the books of the Bible? 
In popular culture, when you watch or read things like the Da Vinci Code, it's become normal to hear claims that the Bible was selected by a group of men in a smoky room with darkness and curtains drawn. But in the Old Testament, there were only a few books that were ever disputed. Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and those disputes were largely related to uncertainty of authorship. Only a few of the books of the New Testament were disputed, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. The vast majority of the New Testament were clearly recognized as the church's inspired scripture and thus part of the Bible. And though Hebrews' author is unnamed, it became clear that he received his info from the apostles in chapter 2. Same with Luke. It was clear he got his material from the apostles. The four gospels are the only ones dated in the first century. And so when you consider the disputes around the books of the Bibles, here's what's fascinating about the New Testament. Roughly 11 of the 260 chapters in the New Testament were disputed. 11. Standards were used when the Bible books were received as Scripture. That's what we call the canon. Uh, Authorship was a key note. Apostolic uh, connection was another key note. But listen, this is what is true as we read the confession of faith. Under the name of Holy Scripture or the written word of God are all the books, and it lists them. But we must recognize this. The church never canonized books by its own authority. Instead, the church recognized the book's inspiration and authority that was given. The church did not canonize the Bible. It did not make the Bible authoritative. Rather, it read those books and discovered God has already made them authoritative. And so when you hear in the 4th century that Bishop Athanasius in his Easter letter was the first list of the entirety of the books of Scripture, that doesn't mean that was a decision the church made. That was a statement in a letter establishing the date of Easter that these books are the ones acknowledged as having authority, the church didn't decide it. The church recognized it. And when Athanasius wrote that letter, there was no dissent. The confession says also that all of these books, 66 books, are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say Scripture is inspired? Essentially, it means that Scripture is God talk, that when you open your Bible, you should feel the breath of God because he's talking. God talk, what Scripture says, God says, and therefore Scripture is infallible, meaning that it is incapable of error. It is impossible for it to have errors because God does not lie and is perfect, and therefore the Scripture is authoritatively decisive as the rule of faith in life. The doctrine of inspiration of Scripture means that Scripture is the very words of God, a product of God's direct superintending and the only absolute and authoritative rule of faith and practice. Thus, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, is divinely inspired. Now, let's consider what divine inspiration does not mean and what it does mean. It does not mean that all Scripture is unordinary or unusual, a la, that was an inspired performance. It doesn't mean that. 
It doesn't mean uplifting. We, I left that meeting inspired. It gave me a lift or a boost. No, Scripture will lift up your hearts, but that's not what we mean. It also does not mean dictation, that Jeremiah and Paul, they, they were not God's typewriters. They were not dictating machines, or as R.C. Sproul says, they were not reduced to automatons with God moving their hands. God did not explicitly dictate what the writer should record without uh, using the human faculties in the individual situations. And so what divine inspiration does mean, what divine inspiration means is organic inspiration, that God inspires Scripture using the human faculties of the writer. We hold to this organic inspiration that the Holy Spirit acted on them in in an organic way where he used their human faculties, their character, their temperament, their gifts, their talents, their education, their culture, their vocabulary, their style, their situations. And the Holy Spirit illumined their minds and aided their memory and prompted their writing and repressed sin's influence on their writings and guided them to express truth. The Holy Spirit emphasized and empowered them to the truth. God worked through their style and mannerisms and background and ensured by his spirit that what they wrote was without error and word of God itself. And thus, this is what divine inspiration means. What scripture says, God says. J.I. Packer wrote this, God the Father is the giver of Holy Scripture. God the Son is the theme of Holy Scripture. And God the Spirit is the author, authenticator, and interpreter of Holy Scripture. That is our doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of inspiration. So, what does that mean for us? We must study it, surrender to it, submit to it, because all of it has all authority. And in our current cultural moment, surrendering to revealed authority is alien. We live in a day that for a long time has basically said, you as an individual are the only one that you can trust. You are the only one who can determine your destiny, who you are, what you're meant to be. Our society says only you can define that for yourself. How you were created doesn't matter. You get to decide. Follow your heart. You are the only rule for your life and practice. That is not what the Bible nor our confession says. The Bible is the divine authority for what Scripture says God says. And just a word on 1.3. Confession of faith says the books commonly called the Apocrypha because they are not divinely inspired and not part of the canon of Scripture and therefore of no authority in the church of God and are not to be approved or made use of in any manner different from other human writings. The Apocrypha was written during the intertestamental period and and when it says in the Confession of Faith they are no different from other writings, basically what it's saying is the Apocrypha's general revelation. You can learn true things from the Apocrypha but it is not authoritative. It can reveal things to us that are true and interesting and formative, just like any history book would or the writings of Clement or Polycarp or Irenaeus in the early church, but the Apocrypha is not authoritative. It must be treated in a a manner no different from other human writings. Now, for, for the confession to state this was absolutely courageous. And likely costly because the Church of England and their 39 articles commend the Apocrypha for the example of life and instruction of manners. But that statement would elevate them above human writings. And so the Confession of Faith makes a clear demarcation. 
The 66 books are the scripture. What the scripture says, God says. The Apocrypha can be helpful, but it is not authoritative. And the evidence, as Reeves and Hill in their book suggest, is that there was no widespread use of the Apocrypha as scripture in the earliest centuries of the church. So, the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God. Let us commit ourselves fully to listening to God and putting our lives under his authority. For further study on canon and inspiration, I strongly recommend Know How We Got Our Bible by Ryan Reeves and Charles Hill. They have an accompanying video study highlighting key developments that that demonstrate the reliability of Scripture. And if you're interested in that further study, I would point you in that direction. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground Podcast.